Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. To begin, Dr. Marianne Allison presents a patient to Drs. Aman Buzdar, Kathy Pritchard, and Joseph Sperano. This is a 53-year-old RN. She worked at a local hospital in a GI lab. She was seen by her gynecologist for a routine exam, and the physician palpated a mass. A biopsy was obtained, and it showed intraductal carcinoma. She underwent a lumpectomy, and the pathology showed a 2.2-centimeter invasive ductal carcinoma. It was grade 3. There was lymphovascular invasion. One of 16 lymph nodes was positive for metastatic disease. She was ERA negative, PRA positive, HER2 new negative. She had no evidence of metastatic disease on scans. Can you talk a little bit about your interaction with her, what her lifestyle was like and her concerns were? She was working part-time, married. They have a home in the Connecticut area, and she was interested in working part-time, being able to leave town, go back to visit her grandchildren. A lot of people in Las Vegas have two homes. And did she have any thoughts or concerns about chemotherapy when you brought that up to her? She had some concerns, but she was more concerned about the cancer, and so she was willing to do whatever we needed to do. She was anticipating chemo. Before we even get into the overall management, Amon, do you want to comment on that phenotype of ER negative, PR positive? I think a small number of patients, about maybe 15 to 20% of the patients fall into that category where the ER might be negative, but PR is positive. And these patients, as far as the decision about endocrine therapy is concerned, we consider them as potentially endocrine responsive tumor, and they do benefit from hormonal therapy. Even in the Oxford overview, this has been looked at, and there is substantial reduction in the risk of event by using endocrine therapy. Kathy, is this in any way a flag that maybe the test wasn't done correctly? We are told theoretically that these patients shouldn't exist. I think they're a small percentage of PR-positive patients that are also ER-negative, but I would regard them as an endocrine therapy-responsive patient. And what was her menopausal status? She was still having periods. So she was premenopausal at age 53. You know, I'm very sensitive to this. We don't do good ERs in the community. I actually challenged my hospital about that. They were somewhat indignant. I started sending some other places, and they actually did a survey, and they actually do a good job. When you kind of started to check it out, did you find that they were doing it well or they needed to focus? No, they were doing it well. I have another hospital lab that doesn't do it as well. Yeah, that's really scary thought, Joe. We're worried about her too, but ER is just as scary to get it wrong. Any thoughts about what's going on in terms of quality control with ER? Well, that's a huge issue. ASCO and the American College of Pathology, I believe, are now trying to craft a position paper on exactly that. The paper on her too was just published. But I think the important thing is, is to do exactly what you did, and that is speak with your pathologists, review the cases. Certainly when we review cases on a weekly tumor board, the pathologist brings immunostaining and shows them to us so that we're convinced that this is a receptor-positive case. In this particular case, I always like to know the level of PR expression because this really sounds more like a very aggressive tumor that may not be endocrine-responsive. And I certainly, in someone this age or even someone who is older, where you might think about using endocrine therapy alone, I'd be concerned about relying on endocrine therapy alone without determining what the level of PR expression was. The other conundrum, I think, is that when you look at RT-PCR expression for ER and PR, at least in the genomic health experience, there's virtually no cases that express PR by RT-PCR don't express ER. 
And we're all taught that generally this is a reflection of a tumor that's largely driven by estrogen receptor signaling. So I still don't understand that paradox. So does that mean you maybe want to send this out for another ERPR? No, I think what it means to me was it's not really an issue in this case because this is clearly someone who needs adjuvant chemotherapy. I think it would become more of a difficult problem in a patient, say, who had a negative lymph node, a smaller tumor, or a lower grade, and you had to make a decision whether you're going to rely on endocrine therapy alone or whether you wanted to add chemotherapy. So I don't really think it's a major issue here, and I would err on the side of potentially overtreating with endocrine therapy, even if the patient may not derive that much benefit, because you may have some secondary prevention in terms of contralateral breast cancer. Okay, I'd sort of like to cut to the chase with each of you in terms of what would you specifically plan for this patient? What kind of chemo, what kind of hormone therapy, if that's what you utilize? One positive node, you heard about the hormone status. Aman? If she came to MD Anderson, our policy is to give these patients four cycles of anthracycline-based chemotherapy and then 12 weeks of taxin-based therapy. Our standard is to give four cycles of FAC or FEC and then weekly paclitaxel at 80 per meter square for 12 doses. And then she is PR positive. I would consider that she should get endocrine therapy. What kind of endocrine therapy? She's premenopausal, so the standard will be tamoxifen. Kathy? Yeah, we tend to use a similar approach. I would think either CEF, which is a common choice in our setting, or dose-dense acetaxel. Even something like FEC100 could be an option for her, although I tend to go for something a bit more aggressive, followed by tamoxifen. Joe? Three equally reasonable evidence-based approaches would be to use either TAC for six Mm -hmm. cycles, dose-dense AC, followed by paclitaxel for four cycles each, or an anthracycline-based regimen followed by weekly paclitaxel. What most likely would you end up doing in your practice, off-study? Dose-dense sequential AC followed by paclitaxel. So what happened to this patient? Well, I, at the time, had a U.S. oncology pilot trial that was open, and it was dose-dense AC followed by dose-dense abraxane, and she was put on that trial. If I hadn't had the trial, I would have used dose-dense ACT. That's what you're usually using? That's what I usually use. I'm using a little more TAC now with the ER-positive data, but I'm not fond of TAC. Not fond of TAC. So that's what she got treated with. And where is she right now? She finished the chemo? Yeah, she finished the chemo about a year and a half ago. Okay, so just before we go on to the next part of this, how did she tolerate the adjuvant, dose dense, AC, NAB? She did very well. She had no neuropathy, which was helpful because she was working in the GI lab, and she lost hair. But other than that, she did very well. And what was her sort of mood and attitude coming out of the chemo? She was glad to be over so she could travel. She just pretty much put one foot in front of the other the whole time. And what endocrine therapy, if any, did you give her? Well, she was premenopausal when we started. She was postmenopausal with the chemotherapy, but she had stopped her periods, and I put her on tamoxifen at that time. So, Aman, can you talk about the issue of abraxane as being looked in this study? I guess that's already been reported. Nick Robert actually right. reported some data from this study, and I think there's been another report looking at the same, I think Memorial is looking, I don't know if they reported it, but they're looking at it. Amon, can you talk about what your thoughts are about the idea of looking at NAB as part of a dose-dense regimen? I think Abraxin, if you want to use dose-dense, it is effective therapy and safety profile, if anything, in my judgment, is maybe a little better Why I say that? Because you don't have to give steroids to these patients and patients at times, 
tolerate the therapy well, but the women are much more concerned about the side effects of the steroids with weight gain and so on. So I think Abraxan is a reasonable option and it can be given at 100 per meter square weekly or you can give it to every three weeks. But preferably, my personal bias would be that if I was using Abraxan, I would use it also as a weekly because it has a better therapeutic index. So this lady was getting it every two weeks. Now, I know that study initially started out without growth factors, and I think then they added them. How did she do? Did she get Nulasta? She got Nulasta the entire time. Another issue about NAB is that it's a shorter infusion time. I'm curious how that kind of plays out in your practice and how it played out for her. Well, we're looking at that very closely in U.S. oncology. I think with the nursing shortage that's coming up and with us as far as chair time is concerned, it really is beneficial. It gets them in, gets them out, and the steroid issue is wonderful. We don't really worry about it as much. Is that the case with her, that yes. her getting out was helpful to yes. her? Yes, she really wanted to spend as little time as possible with us. What was she doing during that time? She was still working. She worked probably three days a week in the GI lab as an RN. Wow. And so she didn't have any downtime from her work. Interesting. Kathy, what's your take on NAB? There was a really interesting paper presented at San Antonio comparing it to docetaxel. What were your thoughts about that study and NAB in general? I think it's an interesting study. I think Abraxane needs to be studied more and better, but it looks like it's an equally effective drug with less toxicity, and I think that's attractive. When you say equally effective, could you kind of go through what was presented at San Antonio? Yeah, they had a study that compared it to docetaxel in a three-weekly regimen, and they had three schedules of NAB, a Q3 weekly one, a weekly one with 100 per meter squared, and a weekly one with, I think, 150 per meter squared. And the 100 per meter squared was a forearm randomized phase two study. They came away from that feeling that the weekly regimens were better than the Q3 weekly with NAB, and that the weekly regimens were better than docetaxel. Could you specify more? More efficacious, longer progression-free survival, better response rate. And To me, the response rates were almost like doubled. Is yeah, that the way yeah, you the read response it? rates were a lot better, whereas the progression-free survival is very early data yet. But they came away from that looking to do a large randomized trial of docetaxel 100 per meter squared every three weeks against a weekly NAB regimen at 100 per meter squared, which looked just as good two weeks out of three. And I think it'd be interesting to see the results of that. Joe, I'm curious about what your take was, particularly in view of the 1199 study that you presented at San Antonio. Maybe you could kind of comment on what that looked at and how you think these new data kind of fit in with the whole taxing thing. Sure. Well, I think it's clear that administering paclitaxel at a standard dose of 175 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks is a suboptimal therapy for both operable breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. And in metastatic breast cancer, in both settings, there is clear evidence, but particularly so in metastatic disease, that weekly administration of paclitaxel is more efficacious. And there's emerging evidence that the same is true in early-stage disease. So this essentially is a cremophore-free formulation of paclitaxel that allows one to circumvent many of the issues that are associated with cremophore, resulting in shorter infusion time, no need for corticosteroid premedication, and all the advantages that come with that. So I would think that the same principles that have applied to evaluating standard cremophore-containing paclitaxel would also apply to NAB paclitaxel as well. It just has not been well studied. What I found intriguing from the study that Kathy mentioned 
was, as you mentioned, the twofold higher response rate for the weekly nabpaclitaxel compared with docetaxel. And that is a unique finding that I do think needs to be reproduced. We need to be cautious because it was a randomized phase two trial. And we do know from previous studies that when paclitaxel at 175 went up head-to-head against docetaxel at 100 per meter squared every three weeks, that docetaxel was more efficacious, but was also more toxic. And I think that's why many people prefer weekly paclitaxel in terms of treating patients with metastatic disease. And I think the other factor is that when one combines a cytotoxic agent with a biologic agent, as was done in the E2100 study, where bevacizumab was combined with paclitaxel, and you need to give the biological agent frequently, there is some rationale to give the cytotoxic more frequently so that you have a greater potential for having therapeutic synergy between your cytotoxic and your biologic. Kathy, I guess one of the issues is how much research is needed when you have an agent that's similar. You know, we just got back from ASCO GI, and there were tons of papers on capecitabine or Xilox versus 5-FU, and there's this big debate when you have a very similar agent, how much data you need. For example, the issue that Joe was just talking about, would you feel comfortable using, you know, putting aside reimbursement and costs using NAB with bevacizumab right now, or do you want to see more data? I think it'd be good to see more data. What about in the adjuvant setting? What kind of data would you need? You would need a phase three trial. What do you think you need in the adjuvant setting to be comfortable making that switch? Well, I guess you'd really like to see some very good data to suggest it's more efficacious in the metastatic setting. But I think the biggest thing is safety data as well. And there's two ways to do that on a big scale. I mean, you can go into an adjuvant study with very tight stopping rules, very tight monitoring of the toxicity you're worried about, like we did with HERA or something like that. But I think basically you'd need some solid data about efficacy and safety, especially when there are so many options in the management setting right now. Okay, well, let's continue on with this case. She was treated on the trial. She completed that, did well, was on her tamoxifen for about a year. She noted a little change in her axilla, not a definite mass. She told us that it felt more full, and she was really very attentive at this point in time since she hadn't noted the mass at diagnosis. So we did a CAT scan that showed a subpectoral mass in the axillary towards the axilla, But there was nothing else on scans. We did a PET scan, and this was the only area that was hypermetabolic. So we did a fine needle aspirate, and it, again, was invasive ductal carcinoma. She was still ER negative, PR positive, and HER2 new negative. At that time, she was seen by her breast surgeon, and it was not felt. This was in a radiated field, and it was not felt to be amenable to surgical resection. Because of what? Because of the location. It was right down on the chest wall, and she felt that even if she went in and resected, it was going to be close to a mastectomy of the old days where it was removing the pectoralis muscle. So, Amon, you have a lady now who has a local recurrence. Any other evidence of disease? No. And no other evidence of disease. Did she have any symptoms from the... Yeah, it was full. She knew there was something wrong, and she really could detect it underneath the muscle. And this was how long after? This was about a year? It was a year out after the A year the chemo. after chemo. And she'd been on tamoxifen that entire time. Kathy, how would you be thinking this through? Well, I'm an endocrine treater, and I guess I think I'd try her on an AI, but I might be a bit pessimistic that that would help this soon without having recurred on tamoxifen. I think I'd give that a try. You've got imaging that can follow it pretty closely, and it's not radiatable, which is too bad. So assuming she doesn't respond to AI, then what? 
I think then if she doesn't respond to an AI, you're looking at some kind of chemotherapy. She's had ACNAB, and I would think capecitabine or some approach with different drugs than what she's had in the adjuvant setting would be most appropriate. What about bevacizumab? Could be an option. I think there are arguments that one could. Joe, how would you think this through? Well, I would also be very tempted and would prefer to be able to use endocrine therapy, but I'm concerned that this has all the features of a tumor that's not behaving as an endocrine-responsive tumor. And I think you'd have to walk a fine line here, and this is someone who I'd want to watch if I did elect to go with endocrine therapy. I would watch her very, very carefully and probably image her more frequently than I would normally image someone who I'm putting on endocrine therapy. And if she progressed on that, which I think she would, my first choice would be weekly paclitaxel with bevacizumab. Given that she has oligometastatic disease, to try and shrink this thing and then perform some type of local surgery to see if we can get some local control. How far out does somebody have to be? She just had taxol a year before. If it had been nine months, would you still do it? In the ECOG study, the prior administration of paclitaxel did not seem to impair the ability to respond to the paclitaxel-bevacizumab combination. In fact, there was no subgroup that was identified that didn't benefit. So I think that sort of makes it easy for us in terms of making a decision who to treat. I think the issue is when to treat. And in this particular case, I think that that would be the most reasonable approach. I mean, another reasonable approach would be to try and use a multi-drug cytotoxic regimen without a biologic like bevacizumab. But I'm concerned here that this tumor seems to be resistant to cytotoxics. So it would make sense to me to try and combine a cytotoxic with a biological agent. Amon, how would you think it through? From looking at the biology of the tumor, it looks like it is resistant, and I would not treat the same class of agent as she has been previously exposed. I think I would treat her. Still, some of these patients might be amenable to long-term salvage, that since the tumor is still intact, that I would treat with a chemotherapeutic drug which the tumor has not seen, like, say, capecitabine or gemcitabine. And I think like a ribbon-one type of approach that you could even include bevacizumab in that type of situation. If she shows substantial reduction with the systemic therapy after 9 to 12 weeks, then I would consider definitive local therapy and even resection of the muscle if it is necessary, because some of these patients actually do well in the long run that we have patients who have been previously treated with anthracycline-based therapy, and when they progressed, we gave them just taxane for about six cycles and did local therapy. And patients who showed response, about a third of these patients actually tend to remain alive free of disease beyond five to 10 years after adequate local therapy. So I think that still there is a window of opportunity to salvage this patient and I would still try to go with that type of approach. Were you concerned that maybe this was gonna get out of control locally and be a real palliation problem? Yes, I was. I was very concerned since it was a year, but it was still fairly aggressive, and I was concerned that I didn't have good agents that were available. What were your discussions like with her at that point? What was her reaction? Well, she was really very scared at that time. She pretty much put one foot in front of the other up until then, and she was very convinced that this was going to be widely metastatic. So she was anxious to do whatever we needed to do. What were her support systems? Her husband's very supportive. The rest of her family, however, is on the East Coast, but I felt that she had good support mechanisms. Let me just talk a little bit about 
this situation, diagnosing somebody with metastatic or incurable recurrence of breast cancer and how you observe these patients responding to that, how you deal with it? I'll start with Atif. It's usually tough, especially if it's only one year, because you get them through the adjuvant, you are still going for a cure. There is no question about that. But once they recur, they feel they did not make it, quote unquote, and that you told us a year ago you are going to make it and we didn't. But you get them through the phases of acceptance. You cannot rush them. You just make sure that they continue to develop the mechanisms to go through the treatment. Kathy, what do you see in this situation? Do you find patients are questioning whether they got the right adjuvant therapy at that point? Well, yeah, I think it's pretty demoralizing for a patient to have gone through that much therapy and recur as soon as a year after. It's pretty tough. I think that in this particular situation, you know, this is a local recurrence. And I think the patterns, even though it's a bit aggressive, I think the patterns of this disease are sometimes less aggressive. I often tell patients in this situation that although it's a recurrence and it's obviously bad news, that localized recurrences may pursue a less aggressive course, that we may be able to treat them with hormones, although I have my doubts in this scenario. And I certainly have patients in my practice many years after with these local regional recurrences that often radiated or on hormone therapy will do well for many years. The surgical approach is tempting, but I wouldn't do it with that kind of surgical advice. But I would tell this patient that she has a chance to remain with controlled localized disease for a substantial period of time. And I think that's the good part of this. May not happen, but I think it's hope and it's a possibility. So can you bring us up to date with this patient? Right. I also participate with the UCLA network, and we had a protocol through Tori that was using Taxotere and Avastin at the time. We did not yet have Ribbon 1, Ribbon 2, which we have now. So she was started on that protocol, and she's actually done very well. She's been on it a little over six months. And the advantage of not having resected her surgically was that we had resist criteria, which are very difficult at times. So she's had minimal toxicity. And she's tolerated extremely well, has not interfered with her work at all. What's the dose of docetaxel? With the Avastin, they dropped it down to 75. And she's done very, very well, and she's had response. So she's had about a 30% reduction in size. Did the symptoms that she have changed? Yes, the symptoms improved. She could tell that the mass was decreasing in size. And any side effects from the treatment? Any hypertension, nausea? No, she's done very well. She's had no hypertension. She's had no proteinuria. She's tolerated it without any toxicity. And are you still thinking that this is not going to be resectable, or do you think it's a possibility? I'm considering it. I just would not like to take her from where she is to something that's going to be in non-healing in a radiated field. Any comment on the issue of combining different chemotherapeutic agents I'm on with bevacizumab? This trial is looking at docetaxel. We've had trials looking at capecitabine and colon cancer. We have tons of different things going on, lung cancer. What are your thoughts about what's going on in terms of how bevacizumab works and how that's going to sync up with different chemo agents? I think the thing which is encouraging is that the patient is responding. And I think at optimal response, she should get definitive local therapy and try to get free resected margin, even it requires rotating a skin flap. Because I think still the patient has a small chance, as I mentioned earlier, of eradicating the disease. And I would then continue at least another six months to a year of therapy. Do you think that this kind of surgery is something that maybe ought to go on at a tertiary center like yours? 
I think that it has to be done by a surgeon who is familiar because the idea is that you want to get clean, free margins. You don't want to just cut through the tumor because she has been radiated. If she was not radiated, the situation is different because you can just get gross disease out and then radiate it. Over here, the patient has been radiated, so the idea is to get a clean margins and it may be even scraping the chest wall out and getting a skin flap over there. Kathy, what are your thoughts about the issue of chemo and the type of chemo that we combine with Bev and how Bev is even working? Well, I think we're in early days of seeing what agents it's best combined with and how it's working. It would be nice if we had some markers to suggest that we could pick out groups. I don't see that that's happening yet. So I think the situation where you can put a patient in a trial like this is optimal. But I think we're going to be using bevacizumab much more widely. 